Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Good evening. Welcome to Comedy Half Hour. Uh, thank you for coming. This is part of the uh, World Cup Legacy Programme, which is quite appropriate because this is the first one we've done after the World Cup. So if you like, it's a retrospective. Um, Richard Shaw Wright is with us. Um, forces beyond his control, I meaning he can't be physically with us, but he is recording us. So hopefully this will still go out as a podcast and a, and a live stream. He's not moving, which always worries me because it looks like his picture might have frozen, but we'll carry on anyway. Um, with us tonight... I don't even know how to introduce you. Man of many hats. Um, David Butler, wheelchair international referee, uh, chairman of the Sheffield Eagles Foundation, general manager of European Rugby League. Um, Occasional 40-20 contributor. Father of... Yeah, when we get desperate, we ring him up and give him a story. <laughs> um, been involved in rugby league in development probably for almost for about as long as I've been alive. No, you're not you? um, So he will be able to tell you exactly about what European rugby league we've got planned to cash in on this wonderful World Cup. And the man with the fantastic flat cap, who you will have noticed is also wearing the livery of the USA wheelchair rugby league team, that uh, is Juan Gesso, which I hope I pronounced that correctly. Who again has a, a long history with the sport involving playing it, coaching it, strength and conditioning, been at London Broncos, been at Keaton, uh, well, Halifax. Uh, yeah, Halifax as a reserve coach, yeah, reserve strength conditioning coach. Um, done some work with Huddersfield Giant Community Trust, um, strength conditioning with the academy boys there, um, coached at Caldadell College, Kirklees College, and have also, you know, helped out with international development with Mexico and Argentina and just, you know, loads of different things. So. But forget all of that, because at the moment he's involved with the USA wheelchair team, which clearly has been one of the huge success stories of the World Cup. Played in Sheffield, 
bounce of a ball maybe away from making the semi-finals, but have only played three games in their entire uh, existence. But look to me to be one of the real success stories of the World Cup, which we'll find out from the inside in a minute. So, um, do you want me to carry on, or you you can carry on, Phil? I mean, I I, 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 I do feel like I'm very much a spectator today, which is pretty much like every program we do at the minute. So, I'm I'm happy for you to just well, just you, carry you on and ask questions. Whether we're any good or not, then. So, we'll take I it mean, from here. You know, I usually ask daft questions anyway, so you know, you feel free to take over. I can ask a daft question. Um, <laughs> For those that, that, that don't know, but don't really need to know, I'm Phil Kaplan, part of 4020, uh, managing editor of the magazine, and we do this on-the-road thing as well. So um, feel free during the course of this evening, while we'll discuss everything World Cup, to just throw in any questions. It's pretty much laissez-faire. Um, so anything you want to know that we're not covering, shout up. But we'll start by getting a retrospective from the guys on, on the World Cup. You were both involved. Um, we were privileged enough to watch it from the outside. So the, the first big question is, what was it like for you from the inside? I had two roles at the World Cup. So for the first three weeks, um, I went to 10 or 12 games in the men's tournament as a spectator. Uh, so supporting uh, the teams from um, European Rugby League, and obviously that includes Lebanon and um, Jamaica as well, so I made sure that I got out and um, saw as many of the members as I could. You know, it's rare that we have the opportunity to see people face to face, so um, went from sort of you know nice hospitality rooms to nice hospitality room to nice hospitality room across the country. Uh, two games here in in Doncaster, which were both fabulous to see as well. Um, obviously, England v Greece at Bramall Lane was was fantastic for Sheffield, but also for South Yorkshire as well. Um, to have a game of that uh, prestige here. And then um, all of that ended on um, Halloween. So it went from tree to trick. And uh, I went into camp with the, the match officials team for the for the wheelchair uh, team. So we had for the, the tournament. So we had a couple of days um, in camp in a hotel in Sheffield where we um, did some training. We talked about the way the game should be played and, and moderated the the laws, so colleagues from France and Australia, definitely. Um, we know all about your colleagues from France. We're not going to talk about that either. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the game is played very differently in Australia, particularly. And um, so we talked about, you know, how uh, presentation-wise it would look and things. And then, literally at uh, lunchtime on the Wednesday, they read out the appointments, and um, the team, team of officials that were um, officiating in London. Um, got on a bus and went to London. I wasn't one of those, and I'm not going to lie, that hurt. I wanted to be involved in that that opening game and, and be there for the balls at the copper box. So, um, yeah, so I watched that on the TV in Sheffield with uh, Steve Abel and, and Grant Jackson. Not quite what I wanted to do. Uh, but then I was involved in uh, France v Wales the next day. And unlike my colleagues, I got to go to bed at half past ten. They arrived back from London half past one and we were all on the bus at eight o'clock the next morning to get to the EIS. So it was fantastic. It was very, um, it was quite frantic for us because we had um, back-to-back games in London, then Sheffield, then a day off. But that day off was match review, train, and get on the bus to get back down to London if you were selected. So I only actually went to the Copper Box uh, once. I think I was the only one in the squad that, that uh, had the pleasure of that. But 
in a way, I was, I was quite happy with that as well because it's, it's a long way down there and back in the minibus to, you know, just to, um, you know, to be tired and then have to go into other games and things. But it's a phenomenal experience, um, learned loads, um, you know, obviously being involved in all those games and seeing the different players, different athletes, and you always have that arm's length um, uh, sort of distance between the players and, and the officials. But um, built some friendships, I think, as well, you know, Facebook, uh, to ignore on the Facebook uh, request during the tournament, <laughs> but uh, could, could release all of those on uh, Saturday last week. Um, but it's great to see, you know, so many games played and then um, we got, uh, we had the semi-finals, so we got picked um, for the semi-finals and things and then um, the squad of eight was cut down to five. Uh, it was quite like the apprentice really, there weren't, there weren't eight suitcases uh, lined up in reception in the hotel, but it did feel like it. And uh, the five of us that were selected for the finals then went home to Manchester and we integrated with uh, the running game squad in the in the apartments that they were in and, and trained and prepared for the, the game on Friday night. And, and what a fantastic way to end the tournament. Four and a half thousand We'll come people. to that in a minute. Don't pay too yeah, soon. Pay too it was soon. only one question. Yeah, it was, it was <laughs> 20 good. minutes later. So, no, it was good. It was good. But, you know, so you've got... You've gave us the officiating side of it. Mm. But I think um, for me, who's had the privilege of going to... Gone to um, 30 of the matches live um, and really enjoyed them. I think the successes, if you, if you look at the three different tournaments, for the men, the first half of the tournament was telling stories. So it was Greece and it was Jamaica and it was Lebanon. If they hadn't been there, we wouldn't be able to tell their wonderful stories, the people that played for them and what it would mean for them. For the women, it was Brazil. They were just ridiculously refreshing. Um, they have a an outlook on life that not only is um, uplifting, but actually reminds you why you fell in love with rugby league in the first place. And for the wheelchair, for, for me, it was the USA. Um, so before we talk about the potential impact that the USA might have on global rugby league, What's it been like for you? But firstly, the preparation, because it's a huge country. You, you're given the task of forming wheelchair rugby league. You've got, what, maybe a year um, that you know that you, initially you're going to be there, then another year that you weren't expecting. And you get a group of people together that have never played a competitive game before. Mm. And they come here in their very first game, defeat an established nation. How exciting was the whole journey for you? And, and tell us a bit about the detail of it. Um, for us, it was, well, for me particularly afterwards, it was a huge relief because of all the time and energy and just stress involved with making this happen. Um, we knew we had something special with the players that we had training back in the U.S., even though we hadn't played yet, but we looked at you know, Ireland play. We looked at Wales. We looked at Scotland. We looked at France and England. Um, I was at the uh, England-Wales match, not this year, last summer at EIS. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was at the England-France match at uh, Gillingham down in Kent last November. Um, so all of that helped with our preparations. And obviously having the tournament postponed also helped us because we knew, hey, these are things that we've picked up and now we can work on these for an extra you know nine months before we leave um and obviously trying to recruit more players and widen that player pool and just 
it was it was stressful for me as the general manager to to put all this together and during the world cup i missed a lot of the great events that happened because i was behind the scenes running around you know like a madman trying to get things done so that the players could just focus on playing the head coach would focus on you know doing his job the physio can focus on her job and everyone just did what they needed to do but we learned so much from this tournament it was exactly what i thought it was going to be which was fantastic and ridiculously hectic and stressful at the same time but also just an amazing reward for the players to be able to to play in this tournament and we knew we had a strong opportunity before we even flew out here that there was a possibility we could make the semifinals and you know very close in terms of recruitment i mean clearly um there is a a huge untapped market for mm-hmm. um, adaptive sport. You tapped into the military as well, and that was quite important. The core of your squad came through um, that service background, which indeed you yourself were from. Yes, that's correct. There's a lot of uh, service members in the U.S. who have um, injuries linked to serving in the military and are now adaptive athletes and um, have obviously movement challenges and disabilities from serving in the military. Um, in the U.S., there's probably about four different organizations that put on adaptive sports tournaments every year, one of them being the National Veterans Wheelchair Games, which is huge. It's played over about 10 days um, with over 800 veterans playing 14 different adaptive sports. We went there this year, set up a stall, and we're telling about rugby league, and they went, Oh, I can't play rugby. I'm not uh, disabled enough. And we were like, no, 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 this isn't quad rugby. This ain't murder, murder ball. It's wheelchair rugby league. And we were showing them the England-France game. And they were like, well, do I have to do it? Is there a classification system? No, no classification system. And the second question was, well, can we get penalized for hitting too hard? And I was like, no. They were like, well, sign me up. <laughs> Which is fantastic <laughs> to hear that they have that sort of energy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do they play wheelchair American football? They're starting to, none of our players do, but there are, they are, are starting to have a wheelchair American football league in the United States. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's being spearheaded by the NFL, obviously. Yeah. Um, but we haven't come across any of those players yet. We will eventually. I was just wondering who we were competing with. Well, right now, the main competitor for, for us as a wheelchair team in the U.S., it's basketball. Um, wheelchair basketball is the biggest um, adaptive sport uh, that's competitive in the U.S. that we're aware of. Um, they have it at universities, major universities, and I believe the wheelchair NBA, I believe they do pay their players. I'm not 100% sure on that, yeah. um, but there, there's leagues and, and, and teams all over the place. Yeah. Going back to America, the size of it, and obviously you've targeted the military, but the size of America and all the states, is there many teams in the different states that you're trying to pull into? At the or moment, are you limited to say New York? Yeah, at the moment, because of the fact that the U.S. doesn't have any central funding for sports, yeah, and everything's basically reliant on donations or sponsorship. We are having our player pool come from a very small catchment yeah. area, um, and it's right now in the Carolinas, so it's about a three-hour radius yeah. uh, from that. We were having people come from Tennessee and Virginia. The guy from Virginia, and a young lady flying from Texas. Yes, um, one of our players, Gabby, she flew, flies in every time we train from Houston, Texas. You know, to That's be a amazing. part of the yeah, to be a part of it. We had another gentleman who came up from Idaho, which is like a six-hour flight. 
internally or a four or four and a half hour flight internally in the US. Um, but as an organization, we're trying to reimburse players for flights and travel and stuff, yeah. and it gets ridiculously expensive. So we worked out that our operating budget is going to be a lot bigger than most countries because of the sheer size of travel and things yeah. like that. Um, but we are going to try and expand our player pool by having regional locations similar to the NFL, where you have a division that's located in the northeast, division in the southeast, and they play each other you know, in, in a division. And then from there, they play in a conference, you know, those winners and so on and so forth. That's the overall plan so that we can still look at players without having to travel all over the U.S. and it costing an absolute fortune. I think the important thing that um, we're talking about almost inadvertently is legacy from this tournament. Oh. Um, and I'm interested, obviously, the European Rugby League is a bit of a misnomer because it covers the Americas. Um, Africa as well, which will be part of 2025. So I just want to go back to the men's tournament and Greece and Jamaica, which both fall under your jurisdiction. Um, there are some people focusing as as we do in rugby league, because it's in our DNA to find the negative before the positive. Um, the, the margins of scores were important, um, but you were close to two nations who debuted in this World Cup, who got a huge amount out of it. Um, again, I had the, the, the absolute pleasure of interviewing a guy called Siobhan Bailey, who played for Jamaica from Kingston. Got that lovely drawl accent that you think, I understand every word he's saying, but I'm going to have to speed up my tape recorder when I listen back to it. <laughs> he was a teacher. It was his first time over here. He played 80 minutes in the first game, which he wasn't expecting to. But he was talking about life experience and what he was going to take back and the plan for Jamaica might be if they if they can pull it off four semi-professional teams in the not too distant future. Spent a fair bit of time with Greece, who again, um, I think won everybody's hearts with the way that they play. Not necessarily the results, but you were close to both of them. And we, we put out a statement earlier today saying that the domestic league is kicking off in Greece this weekend. And there are nine male teams, there are four female teams there. They've had issues themselves about recognition. And that now looks like it's sorted out. What sort of impact do you think nations like that have got from this World Cup, bearing in mind that performance-wise, that wasn't the criteria? Not at all. So I think uh, Greece is a, one of the best examples. In their squad, they had eight players that came from the domestic league. So out of a squad of 24, eight of them were uh, you know, playing in the Greek comp. I think that a squad is, a match day squad is 17. So eight minus 20, or 24 minus eight is 16. So you're always guaranteed one of those players is going to play in that game. In actual fact, they all played against Bradford and, and they certainly were well rotated against uh, France and Samoa and England when they played that. And I think the experience of being in a full-time environment um, with better players around them, you know, obviously they've, they've drawn on heritage players as well that are playing in, in higher uh, quality competitions. But then the exposure to the opposition as well, and the you know the, the chance to sort of run out against some of the world's best, um, you know, is, you just can't get that anywhere else. So those eight players will take that back to Greece. They'll take that back to their clubs. They'll take the learnings that they've had from training, from video review, from S and C, from lying in a pool, whatever else it is that they've been uh, up to while they're in Sheffield, Sheffield obviously, <laughs> there, when they've been uh, alive. But um, they'll take that back and they'll they'll raise the standards within those clubs and the, the players are quite well distributed as well. And I, I know that the plan for 
2025 if Greece qualifies is that that number eight goes goes that way uh, as well yeah. and more people come from the domestic comp so it, it's ginormous and that you know, that experience will be exactly the same for Jamaica and you know the arguably the, the the profile of the World Cup in those countries you know we don't know what impact that has had but it, it's just that core learning and the and the exposure to, to basically doing what everybody wants to do play for your country be a full-time athlete get loads of care and swan around signing autographs I mean you can't, you can't do that anywhere else, can you? Well, I think apart from the fact that Greece were clearly engaged with the Sheffield community while they were here, which is why they got beaten by 90-odd points at Bramall Lane. But the, yeah, the team that people... Yeah, but the team <laughs> that people wanted autographs from and selfies with when they came out of the dressing room was the Greek team. Yeah. Because they got to know some of the kids and, um, and I think everybody appreciated the style with which they played. It wasn't what we were used to seeing. They were prepared to try things. And it's also interesting as well that talk of the domestic competition kicking off this weekend. Some of those players who played in the World Cup are not now just players, they're player coaches. So they've taken on this added responsibility of saying, I've got some knowledge that I can now impart. So I think, again, relating that to, to you know the squad that you brought over from America, we were talking about it in the car on the way down. It's important that we recognise that some of the people that are playing this sport don't have traditional rugby backgrounds. Mm -hmm. We've always tried to sell in on the back of the running game. And I'm not sure that's going to ever be possible because, as you say, of all the competing um, sports that have. But your captain, who interviewed brilliantly, spoke very passionately and eloquently about the experience he had. He is a senior lecturer at a major university that prides itself on its sport. And that's the kind of contact that rugby league can't get. So, yeah. you know, again, have you tasked them with going back and spreading the word and forming a club? And well, we we told them first and foremost when they all came on board and were selected for the national team that they're all ambassadors for the sport. Once they return back to the U.S., and they are going to be key in helping us develop the game and moving it forward by spreading word of the game and you know, helping us establish other clubs um, in the regions where they're at. And particularly when we try and take um, games on the road to help speak to people, you know, because people will be asking questions not only for us, but to the athletes themselves who are the ones who are, hey, what's it like to play the game? What's it like to have to travel? What's it, you know, all that sort of stuff that we can't answer as able-bodied athletes or people those athletes will be able to get across the message and tell people exactly what it's like. And they're the ones that are going to draw players across, not us. And so it's very key having them on board. We have um, only one able body in the entire team for us. Uh, for but it's US. a different demographic as well, isn't it? Yeah. It's not the traditional rugby playing public. Um, and I think the, the point about that is um, that gives you unlimited potential mm -hmm. um, because what you say, you've got to find sponsorship and we appreciate that um, you know, this is rugby league, everything is short of money. Yeah. But do you genuinely think that this is going to open the door to a continent where sport is king? If we, if certain things align right, yes. One of the things that a lot of our athletes have said um, is that if we get this right, wheelchair rugby league could be the biggest adaptive sports in the US, which is a huge statement to make. Um, our end goal is to have a fully professional wheelchair rugby league set up domestic competition in the US. 
where we have athletes from England, Spain, France, and Australia wanting to play in our competition because we can draw the crowds, we can draw the money, we can draw that pool. I think it's a, especially in the US, that is 100% possible. But obviously, that's going to take a, that's going to take time. Yeah, so like a hidden gem, isn't it? Mm. I mean, it's like uh, it's like with the wheelchair rugby. I saw and you've probably seen it. The advert for when uh, USA played in Canada in America in New York. They advertised it of all the bits without fifth without the padding. Mm. Now, when people at work have been asking me about the, when we talked about the wheelchair, I've described it as robot walls for people. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. They have no respect for the copyright. <laughs> and there's little things like that that could be a good way of yeah. promoting it yeah. to show that it's action packed as well as skill. Yeah. Are the pitches the same size as a basketball court? No. Um, our pitch, way fit onto a basketball court? No, we have to play across three, three basketball courts to get that dimension that we need. We could play across two, but it's a little bit compact. Um, but ideally, we would like three courts. So where are the, where are the stadiums or the places that can hold these games? So in, in the UK, we play on smaller pitches where required. So the, the full-size pitch is 40 metres, trial line to trial line, 20 metres, touch line to touch line. And as Juan said, that is, you need a bit, well, you need two and a bit basketball courts. So Think about locally, there's the Institute of Sport in Sheffield, and that's it in the, uh, there's the whole university, and that's it in Yorkshire. So we don't have many three-court hall facilities. There are two in Manchester that you can put a postage stamp on them. So generally in the comp in the domestic competition here, um, you get a lot more two-court hall basketball balls. So um, you, you can shorten the pitch or narrow it slightly, but some teams just play on uh, you know, a basketball court or slightly bigger. As well. So it's not optimal because you've not got the same width and obviously defensive patterns look a little bit different. So for the Leeds one where they because they played at Becky. Yeah, it's one, one, one of the smallest ones. And it doesn't actually suit Leeds. They do enjoy playing away because they tend to play yeah. on slightly bigger pitches, yeah. which yes. suits their style. Yeah. Um, but Leeds is an interesting one because it's got a 10,000 capacity arena, which is the perfect size, but probably too big at the moment. And it's got Leeds Becky, which is ideal for the amount of supporters that they draw but not really big enough so yeah but that's a growing pain uh, it doesn't apply as much in america because obviously the college system means that there are greater facilities that you will have yeah. access to there is a lot of facilities around there it's just convincing and showing the maintenance ground guys whatever you want to call them that manage those facilities to say this sport will not damage the floor that's their biggest concern so the venue that we train at, we had to show them, hey, just let us practice there. We'll show you it's not going to tear up your floor. Um, it just scuffs it like basketball does. And, you know, those scuffs come up, you know, like anything else. So we've had some interest from different organizations who one of them actually came to us and said, we'd like to see if you guys would be available to play this at a NBA halftime. And I was like, yeah, that'd be huge. That hasn't materialized yet, but there are opportunities for us there, and there's plenty of venues. The problem that we might have with some of the venues is they're huge. It's not like here where you can get a smaller venue. We're talking minimum 25000 and the cost associated with that you know, would be huge. Unless we're bringing across England for a three-test series, Australia for a three-test series, which we want to do. 
we might be able to fill that if we can find, you know, those teams to come across and find everything that we need to make that happen. But just for us as domestic leagues, we're probably going to be small, playing in somewhere smaller um, just, to, just to keep the cost down at the moment. Yeah. So there's plenty of venues. There's plenty. There's loads of them. Yeah. The same, just the same as the running game, really, though, as well, aren't they? In a good way, I mean. Yeah. So let's look at the three tournaments. Uh, we'll come back to wheelchair last because you were both involved in it. And it is actually the water cooler moment for rugby league that so many people are talking about wheelchair that wouldn't normally engage with with a sport. So we'll come back to that because I think that's been the jewel in this World Cup crown. So we'll start with the men's. Um, obvious question is, ask you your highlight moments. Um, see, I've done any homework. Um, and then um, we could try and evaluate if that was a success or not. And mm -hmm. was it in any way tarnished by England not getting to the final? My, my highlight moment is 18,760 people at Bramall Lane watching England versus Greece. So having worked in, in development of rugby of both codes in South Yorkshire for nearly 20 years, to have the national team playing in, in Sheffield, at the same time as Wednesday. At the same time as Sheffield Wednesday and get a record crowd for a game of rugby league in Sheffield. It was fantastic. And you've got a Wednesday fan turned up for England game. Yeah, of course. We've got loads of it as well. Because I think that's the whole reason why England wore uh, blue and white, to be honest, in this, uh, <laughs> yeah, in this tournament as well, to appeal to the Sheffield Wednesday uh, crowd. But no, that, that yeah. was mine for me, Phil. And, and, you know, people will look at that crowd and say, well, you know, it's not 25,000 that we got it at uh, Bolton the week before. No, oh, it wasn't. It was fantastic. Yeah. Mm. Any highlights from the men's tournament? Um, for me, all I got to watch was the final, which I know most people would be like, oh, but it was uh, obviously, um, for me, that was great seeing Samoa play in the final because usually it's always Australia, New Zealand, Australia, England, you know, um, so seeing a different team there was fantastic. And there's a lot of supporters there for Samoa, but obviously afterwards as well, it was fantastic because you, you met so many some supporters from Samoa and they saw the same colors and they were like, oh, you support Samoa. And then they saw the wheelchair for the U.S. and they were like, hey, we watched you guys on TV. You guys did fantastic. So not only did they watch the men's game and they support the men's game in Samoa, but a lot of people did watch the, the wheelchair games as well, which um, for us, especially for myself, having grown up for the most, I don't say grown up, but having lived here for so long, to have somebody come up and say, oh, yeah, I support, you know, Samoa, but I actually watch wheelchair rugby league and I watch the U.S. is huge. I think two of the highlights that um, we shouldn't forget in a hurry, because I think they sum up what's best about rugby league. First one was the quarterfinal between Tonga and Samoa, mm -hmm. the simultaneous <clears throat> Sipi Tau and Sipi Tau, um, that went, uh, you know, ridiculously global and uh, uh, was a wash on social media. Um, not many sports could do that. I, I, I just felt extremely proud that that was rugby league, that those two nations showed so much of their heritage, but respect for each other. They then went on and knocked, oh, 10, oh, bells, knocked <laughs> 10 bells out of each other as well, which was e e even better. I think the other thing, talking about Samoa, um, The Rock, again, I have to confess yes. at my age, not, not somebody I've ever come across, but apparently he's quite famous. Um, Obviously, of Samoan heritage, I'm pretty sure in those few days before the actual final, he didn't really know what rugby league was, but he put out a message that hit 350 million Instagram followers, yeah. and the passion that he spoke of what you've got to do to represent Samoa and what it would mean to the nation, and 
I think again that's a, that's something that rugby league can't normally do, um, and it would be criminal actually to not capitalise on that. But it just yeah. shows you again what we are capable of when we get it right. That speech. <laughs> well, see, just just him putting that out. There's a lot of uh, Pacific Islanders on the west coast of the United States. Um, one of the guys over on the west coast who is you know running a lot of the games out there basically called us and said just from the rock putting out that on social media we have had we've been inundated with calls and emails of people wanting to play the game and because they, they found out hey there's local rugby league in the u.s can we get involved so it, it has helped you yeah. know an impact immediately you know somebody's got 385 million you know social media followers on one platform so that was fantastic I think, I think he knows more about rugby league than you think. His cousin is junior bye bye. Well, that. yes, but whether, whether he uh, has ever been approached by Hulk KR, that we don't know. <laughs> man can dream, man can dream. <laughs> I, I think, I mean, again, you, we can pick out uh, performances. Um, I thought the, the Australian New Zealand semi final at Ellen Road was the closest we'll get over here to seeing Origin in our back garden. Um, but I don't count fans. Yeah. yeah, I think Kevin Sinfield. I highlights with that. Yeah, Kevin Sinfield entering the stadium at Old Trafford at halftime wasn't, wasn't, wasn't a dry eye in the house, which again reflects so well on not just him as a human being and what he's doing and why he's doing it, but that was a rugby league audience that took him to their heart. And I've and seen all, that picture of Milman English shaking his hand. Yeah, and, and they the were The between them. Well, mm. it's interesting. We, we got the chance to have, to, to have a, uh, a Skype call with Kevin today to just talk about what he'd done. Um, we should be able to read about it in the next 40 seconds. But again, he said it wasn't that they said anything to each other. It was the fact that they knew. But there aren't many coaches whose team were playing in a World Cup final at half time that would make their way out to shake their hands with somebody. Yeah. Which again tells you again all about the values of the sport, which I think we forget when we say, oh, a stadium was empty. I think Middlesbrough was, was a great experience. It was, it was a game that um, was probably the, the least enjoyable of all the matches that we saw in the group stage because it wasn't competitive. But so many of the fans that were there were talking about, I've never been exposed to rugby league for what a great game, what fantastic yeah. skills. When we left the ground at Newcastle on the opening day, 50% of the people there were from the northeast. You didn't hear people as you were leaving saying, oh, I thought the ticket prices were high or I didn't get the seat that I wanted or uh, the, the, the uh, PA system failed for, for 10 minutes, what went on there. They were just, they'd had a great experience. They'd seen their national team play um, on their pitch and enjoyed it. Um, so I think we, we lose track of Ben Jones Bishop scoring Jamaica's first try in his yeah, yeah. 300th appearance. <coughs> yeah, the bomber for him to leave. All of mm. that. So they're the good things. We have to talk about England. <laughs> Do we have to? <laughs> Should the minimum requirement of England, bearing in mind that you know part of your uh, role as, as ERL encompasses England being the leading nation in the Northern Hemisphere, should the minimum requirement have been to get to the final? Can they therefore be classed as having failed in this tournament? Uh, I'll be careful answering this. <laughs> now, Sean's not watching you. I don't, think you can, I don't think you can put a, a requirement on a team to, to do something. I think you have to, the team has to perform and meet its own objectives. So, you know, I'm sure that. Um, John Dutton and Chris Brindley and Dean Harmon didn't sit down with a, a plan and say England have to do this. You know, would the talk would the final have been uh, even fuller than it than it was, and even more of a spect spectacle if England were there? I'm, I'm sure it would have been. Um, 
I'm fortunate to have been to a World Cup final that featured England, but not in this country. Um, and it wasn't that full there. So, uh, you know, I remember 2013, Australia versus New Zealand at Old Trafford, fantastic crowd and, and day out. So, you know, I, I'm sure they're disappointed and I'm sure that every team coming into that World Cup dreamt of winning it, some planned to win it, and some were disappointed that they weren't in the opportunity, they didn't have the opportunity to win it. But as for whether they failed or not, I don't know. I'd, I'd want to see what their objectives were. All right, then let me put it another way. The worst performance ever in Golden Point Extra Time. Um, was it? Yes, they were a tra- uh, They never got out of their own hands. I've seen they a few. Have, <laughs> they, have three, they have three possessions and managed to mess up all three of them. Yeah. Personal opinion of that one, they tried to play out as if they had 80 minutes. They panicked and tried to go for more. No, I think the, the interesting thing about the, the men's and women's England teams is they seem to want to play in a very structured way, which is in the image of their coach. And that's fine when you're winning. And there was nobody criticising any team selections when the team was winning. The perceived weaknesses with the selections came when they lose and you can't change the way that you play. So it's great bringing Chris Hill off the bench. But when you're 20 points to 12 down, Chris Hill is not going to win you that game. He's going to help you not lose it. But who's the player that's going to have the spark that you need when you're behind? And I think both the men and the women probably suffered a little bit from that, if we're talking solely England. I'm just thinking back to the start of the tournament, well, before the start of the tournament, we all say it's a failure now, but looking back to when the teams were selected, a lot of people wrote it off before the tournament even started, when you look back. I think we assumed looking at the draw um, and being realistic about um, the respective competitions in the Northern and Southern Hemisphere that we would probably get beaten in the semi-final by Tonga, uh, which would have been a repeat of the 2017 semi-final where Tonga went within seconds of winning that game. And I think that would have been, you could have almost justified that because Tonga were on an upward curve and they'd started this tier two nation that is... Uh, attracting heritage-based players. I think when we saw it was Samoa and we'd beaten them so well in the first game and that we'd done psychologically so well to get it back to 26 all when we hadn't played particularly well, that we thought the team would go on then and probably do the job. Um, and I think that was a disappointment coming out of Arsenal, where, again, there was a great crowd of just over 40,000. Yeah. As I say, I do think it was a golden point for some reason. just seemed to panic. And again, having said that, when you get over your disappointment, that I'll probably never live long enough to see a running team win the World Cup. Um, In any sport. <laughs> that, the viewing figures were you know, 2 yeah. million, which was astonishing. And the so game itself was highest, uh, magnificent. Viewing figure see, my, my perspective of it, when you're on that, that question about failure, when his squad came out, I just, ex- I mean, and it did surprise me, but I didn't think he had a maybe a plan B, C, like you say. It were like an old made of peak players that would qualify for playing for Wigan with this style of play. And, and, I, and I get that, that every coach... And I couldn't see any attacking players. Well, and again... It, you know, look, if, Lytton, if we assume that maybe Sam Tompkins wasn't fit yeah. and Jack Wellsby looked a bit out of place at standoff, at some point in a game that you're losing, why not try switching Jack Wellsby to fullback? Or, yeah. Try something different. And I think both the men and the women. Let's give him injured. He he could have played. 
Yeah, but then, but then you got the surprise. Callum Watkins seemed to roll with years back. And so did Ryan Hall when he played. But, but as a legacy thing, yes, we're quite good, especially in England, glorifying old things. So you know, Maradona hadn't got there. Mm -hmm. You know, that's probably the only game from Mexico that anybody remembers. Right, was it 2013? You know when we lost to New Zealand in the last minute? Yeah, that's been shown loads of times. Yeah, we don't remember any other game in that tournament. We remember that. So the Crichton's drop goal, and so probably this this drop goal thing, it will become one of those things. I think you're right. And again, I... like, like when we lost to Australia, the only thing we show is that. Is that? Yeah, the ankle tap. The ankle <clears throat> tap. Even I remember and, that. Even that. So we build this sort of mythology up around, you know, we're only just beaten by this and that and the other. And okay, if England had got through, Old Trafford would have been full. Those other fifteen thousand tickets would have sold them. You know, I know people. I know people who were sat on their phones, ready to press buy. Jimmy, I think I think you're right, and the only reason I posed that question was clearly to provoke a debate, and it's really interesting. <laughs> but I also think that from a media point of view, there were a lot of features planned in that last week leading up to Old Trafford that were dropped by some national newspapers because England weren't in it, and they had switched yeah. their focus to the Football World Cup. Yeah. Um, we did get some fantastic coverage in the papers. Newspapers were ringing up wanting the story of Greece. They, they, they don't do that normally. Uh, but I think having England in the final would have given us a, a, a huge boost yeah. in terms what of profile. Was, what was the TV it was brilliant. I mean, I think um, I don't know if they released the individual figures for the final, but I think over 30 million people have watched the BBC during the course. Yeah, of the see, I, I saw that and they go, this is really good. And I saw one of the persons go, we're amazing. I, th I think is that is that. 30 million people, or is that one? Is that the you know half a million rugby league supporters? Well, I, I, think, games? I think we can come back to that when we talk about wheelchair because clearly that generated an audience that had nothing to do with traditional rugby league. Yeah. So we dissected, if you like, the men's tournament. Uh, I tried to get you to blame Sean, Wayne, but you wouldn't. <laughs> um, I don't blame him, by the way. I think he went with what he felt would be his strongest squad and yeah. and what happened in Newcastle opened everybody's eyes and all the criticism fell away and we just couldn't, again, there's, there's a debate to be had about our domestic competition. Do we prepare our players enough for playing four, possibly five highly intense games week after week when our domestic competition doesn't give us that? So back to you administrators and IMG to sort that out. But no, I, I thought uh, it would have been great to have England in the final. Uh, and the fact that we've got a game that we'll talk about forever, um, which was won by a, a golden point extra time, probably about as good as we could have expected. So go to the women, and I think before the competition started, we all expected that the teams from particularly Australia and New Zealand would be physically more developed, faster, more technical, more skillful than anything we could put up with because of the strength of the NRLW, which we we all had the privilege of watching. So England get into a semi-final and taking New Zealand close, certainly a lot closer than when they played New Zealand in the semi-final five years before, 
women's tournament go down as a success? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I think when you talk about the tournament, we're not talking about the home home team. So the opening day in front of 10,000 people at Heading are a record crowd for women's internationals, the standalone fixtures as well. I don't think uh, I don't think anybody can complain about that. You know, all of the games were broadcast on the BBC. There were some great crowds. There were some great stories around it. So one of the games, um, you know, we saw all of the GB lionesses go and receive their long overdue and hard earned caps that, that, quite frankly, should have been awarded in the uh, in the eighties and nineties when uh, when they were earned and, and shouldn't have had to have waited thirty years to to get that recognition and that. You know, was born out of well, one woman's belligerence, Julia. You know who you are, but but also the fact that we had a platform to do it. You know, at the same time, we've seen three uh, women enrolled into the Hall of Fame, and I can tell you, it's not that long ago that I wrote a nomination for a player, and was told it won't be the Hall of Fame, but it it will be the Roll of Honor. So attitudes have changed as a result. So, you know. Did England, I don't care whether England performed or not, quite frankly, was the women's you know, tournament a roaring success? Yes, it was. And the fact that my rough um, calculations of uh, counting people at Old Trafford suggested I think there were about 20, 35,000 people in the ground at the point when, when the game kicked off. We, we wouldn't have had that seven or eight years ago now. So absolutely a success. You didn't ask me what my highlight was, though. Well, if you don't say Edna Santini, I'm not speaking to you. Well, my, I'm going to cheat this right. My highlight isn't from the tournament because I didn't really get to engage much with the women's tournament because of the wheelchair running uh, concurrently, although I did go to the final uh, things. But I went to the France v Brazil uh, game, which was a friendly at Featherstone, home of rugby, wheelchair rugby, international rugby league uh, in Featherstone uh, before the game kicked off. And the highlight for me was at the end of the game, the, the two games came together and they shook hands. And then it was almost like somebody had realised, put presents. And then Brazil ran off into the changing room and, and came back with literally uh, wrapped presents and bags and gifts. And the French women also went, oh yeah, we've got presents too. <laughs> they ran off. So the Brazilians are all stood there going, where are they gone? And they came out and, you know, crossed the language barrier, they exchanged gifts yeah. and things. And then they all lined up along the 20 metre line. And we're led in a rendition of the Macarena. And I thought to myself, <laughs> this, this has got, yeah, well, yeah I was definitely uh, involved. This is not rugby league as we know yeah. it, but this is what, just having a good time. But this is what I like rugby league. That's, 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 that is you go on league. tour, you meet friends, you exchange gifts, you do things that are a little bit wacky that you wouldn't normally do, but you quite have to talk about them when you get home. And, uh, and you're trying to smash the living yeah, whatever you're just out just of it to the each other for 80 minutes and now you're swapping Instagram and all of that sort of thing and I thought for the two teams who ended up finishing bottom of their respective pools I only wish that that was their experience at the end of the tournament that they'd had that opportunity to mm. go home they probably had their peak enjoyment before uh, before the tournament kicked off so you presumably saw the whale at uh, the women's final so as a coach or with your coaching hat on, do you sit there and admire how skillful the Australians were and the fact that they could do that relentlessly for 80 minutes? And do we get too wound up with the margin of the score and we don't focus enough on the brilliance that got us to that score? 
Yeah, I, I do think there is a point where, especially for a lot of people who are involved with the game, you don't, you have to switch off your brain to enjoy the game. But when you're looking at it from a coaching standpoint and you're looking at how good they are and some of the things that are, you know, some of the moves that they're able to put on and set them up, you know, and sometimes even in the wheelchair game, I notice this, they're setting up for two plays. You can see, at least I can, they're setting up, hey, they're not setting up for this play. They're setting up for two or three plays down the line to get something off. And for them to be able to do that and, and how skillful they are doing that just shows the, the, the amount of time they've had at high level training, high level, you know, competitions and also the, how well they gel as a squad to come together. Um, so I, I really enjoyed it um, in all aspects of it, seeing these finals. I think the, there's been a number of highlight games, but certainly in the women's, the highlight game for me was Brazil and Canada, which <clears throat> the final group game, nothing riding on it. 10 all going into the very last play of the game. The try that Brazil have scored is a 100 metre interception. We need more Edna's in the game. I want an Edna Santa in this year. And Canada <laughs> come up with the most ridiculous play involving two kicks and a ball that spins back over the dead ball line to win it in the final second. And both nations embrace each other. But these are nations that represent a continent each, mm. Canada and Brazil, at Headingley. And the, the joy, the unbridled joy of those two nations because Canada had got their win and Jamaica had come so close and uh, Brazil had come so close. <clears throat> and they weren't desperately upset that they lost in the last minute. They felt that they had something they could build on to go back home with. And they were all singing and dancing and doing a worm in front of the South Stand. Like that, those are the highlight moments, I think. And we shouldn't f forget those or undervalue those. So that's the men's and the women's. The highlight of the tournament has clearly been wheelchair. It's the perfect televisual sport. Everything, it's a bit like snooker. When we first got snooker on the television, your, the size of your screen is the size of the table. Nothing happens that you can't see or be involved with. It's exactly the same in the, in the wheelchair. There's nothing extraneous. It's funny you say that, because that's what I thought it was like watching the finals. Like all the lights were dark, all you could see was the, the pitch. I was like, it was like a snooker match, you just, you know, yeah, huge so, trip hazard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on the edge. Yeah, we got huge television audiences, we got games upgraded from the red button to BBC Two. Um, we got people in other sports talking about what they'd watched the night before. Uh, we got a congratulatory tweet from Ipswich Town Football Club to England when they won the top. No, Ipswich Town. So first of all, was that the jewel in the crown? And then we'll talk about how we can best capitalise on that. So you yeah. you were involved, so uh, um, clearly your perspective will be different yeah, to mine. But obviously, it was the uh, jewel in the crown, uh, not least because of our involvement. <laughs> so I, I think it was. I think I think the wheelchair tournament did a lot of great things. One, it, it reached new audiences, you know, the times that the um, games were on for TV definitely captured a, you know, a daytime market and, uh, and um, you know, I understand there are a few tweets about Gardner's World having to, to move and, uh, you know, most of the gardeners seem to fall in love with it uh, as well. But I think, you know, it raised the bar in terms of production. So obviously they've still not taken the floor up in, in Sheffield where uh, Richard is now there. 
uh, there. But they, you know, the fact that we um, moved out of a, a sports hall floor, you know, everybody made a lot about the floor, by the way, just a wooden sprung floor that uh, it goes in most sports halls. But you know, the vinyl, the clear um, um, pitch with, with no other line markings on, the fact that uh, we could get lights on it, it's an indoor arena, you can change your production around, raise the bar. You know, that's going to be a, that's tough for people like uh, me who's got to run the next uh, continental <laughs> championships follow we haven't got the same budget but you know it, it showed what can be done and i think i think there's a number of things you know we reminded people that wheelchair we're believing in inclusive sport it's not a disability sport so there is no other sport i can think of in this world or team sport anyway where you know disabled people can play with non-disabled people you know at domestic level we've got families that never thought they could play sport together um, who can do that? And, and you know, in the past, obviously Jack and Harry Brown, uh, you know, both playing uh, with each other as well. It's unthinkable in, in many sports. So we reminded people of that, but I think we also reminded people that um, disabled athletes don't need wrapping up in cotton wool. You know, we saw some of the big hits. We saw some of the, um, uh, you know, the anger and the frustration and the, the aggression uh, coming out there. And I think you know, we reminded the nation that just because you're sat in a wheelchair doesn't mean that you. Uh, well, like I said, need to be wrapped in cotton wool or, or treated any differently. So, you know, I, I think that was probably uh, you know some of the highlights uh, you know that have come out of it. But you know, to go to Manchester, four and a half thousand people, the production, you know, in the in the if you wanted to call it GMX in Manchester Central, you know, the like I said, the lights where mm. literally the lights <laughs> were the border of the the pitch, and I, you know, I was in goal. I know if I stood. Uh, back two centimetres from the edge oh, of the pitch, not. I fell off his premises, <laughs> and uh, you know, could come find my water bottle and things like that. But you know, it was it was it was absolutely superb. And people who went to that final, who may not have been a rugby league fan or maybe were a rugby league fan, will have seen and the game in an, literally in an entirely different light. You know, we put on a, a show that night. We didn't put on a game, mm. and um, or the game was part of the the overall show. And you know. Th- that's what that's it's the razzmatazz that sells you know people my daughter came to watch her, one of the games and she, she doesn't care what happens in the on the field she was telling me about the autograph she collected she <laughs> john dutton had given her a, a notebook she'd seen claire Baldwin and had a photo with her you know and apparently there's some rugby broke out at some point and dad was involved but that's that, you know that's what it brought to me. It just it just took everything to the new level. I'm so excited about it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so again, talk, talking um, perhaps with the perspective of those who are working inside the game rather than the rest of us who just loved everything we saw. The interesting um, contradiction throughout all of the tournaments was that some people were complaining about margins. The biggest margins up until the final were in the wheelchair, but those same people were saying, I love the wheelchair, I can't get enough of it. That final was something else. Um, mm. Tom Coyd said in the lead up to it, he thought it would be low scoring because you had two yeah. nations who prided themselves on their defence mm. and who going through the tournament had shown how good they were defensively. Can you put into context for us, quality wise, how good that final was? I don't. I think it's really difficult to put into context that because unless you you're involved with it and see 
you know, how physical it is to be able to position yourself the way they did, the way England has a set structure for their defensive line, and they use that very well against France. Um, and France, to, you know, their credit, a lot of people think, oh, they're just always attacking, but their defense is also very good. They get back extremely quickly and they swarm. You know, so defensively, it was a very, very good game. Um, it's just two completely different styles of defending, which obviously both work. But when you're playing the two best nations each other, uh, I mean, obviously, they're going to they're gonna find some holes, and they did. But, um, you know, for us, we picked up a lot from, from that, from the skills that we saw as a team from every game, not just the, the you know, France, France game or the England games we watched. Um, so there was a lot of positives for us to take away from that. Um, but you could see that they were, you know, a caliber above. And even with the score lines, what they were, we felt we did really well, considering that we were first, you know, debutante nation, and it's the first time we've ever played France, and they always put 100 on us. Okay, yeah, it's a big score line. But they put 156 on Wales. And Wales are number three in the world. It's the first time we've ever played. And for a period there in the first half, they didn't score on us for 20 minutes. And physically, we were able to keep up with them from, you know, being able to go up and down the pitch with them. Skill-wise, different story, but that's why they're number one team in the world, and they have an impressive domestic competition that they are, you know, playing in week in, week out. So, you know. I think as well, we talk, in, we talk often about wheelchair mobility does yield higher scores. You know, uh, 50 points to 20 game in wheelchair would be equivalent to a, a sort of 24 24 6 24 game in the running game so i don't think we need to read too much into that what, what that does tell us though is i couldn't tell you what the score from the final was uh, <laughs> to be honest you were working i know i wasn't, I wasn't writing the scores down I, <laughs> all i'm dealing with everything else but um you know it was low scoring and that threw you very much in the 6 8 you know 8 10 sort of category there which tells you that it's either a game for the purists or uh, I think again, we've all fallen in love more with rugby league, uh, with wheelchair rugby league. I think, um, as a magazine, Richard will confirm, um, we saw the potential of it quite early on, and we've been champions of that and the women's game because it is rugby league. And I think the legacy of this World Cup is: do we now have another product? Can we now sell this aside from? The running game. Um, we talked about potentially opening doors in a in a nation like America, but when we have our next television deal, which will only be at the end of next year, do we now not say, "Oh, we'll throw you in a couple of wheelchair games"? But actually, you need to now bid for this. Um, this is this is a product that you can stand alongside any other sporting uh, rights that you may go out and buy. And how do we achieve that? Yeah, I think domestically here, definitely that is a. An opportunity, and you look at um, you know, the Super League final, the Challenge Cup final, the, the, the recent tests. You know, I mentioned uh, England v Wales, where England and France uh, tests earlier this year, the November series last year, have all been broadcast on either Sky or or the BBC, and um, you know, production is fairly easy. You're dealing with a much smaller um, facility, so you know, we don't need the, the helicopter uh, uh, up, up there or anything like that, and you, you can get away with less cameras, so it's, it's, it's a lot easier to, to do the production for. And I think it is genuinely exciting, so I think people have seen that. Obviously, from a commercial broadcaster's point of view, um, there's potential for a different 
marketing, different ad, um, advertisers to come in uh, involved in that. So, you know, I'm sure I'm sure that's something that you know the guys selling the the TV deal uh, locally will be considering. And certainly from a you know, from an international perspective, yeah, absolutely, it's a it's a separate event. You know, we um, will have the running game. Uh, European Championships in October next year. There is plans for a wheelchair tournament as well, which we've worked through some some fine detail on. But they won't be plugged in together. Uh, one, we haven't got the resource to deliver it all in in one go. But actually, you know, it deserves to stand alone and and have its own place. So you know, I'm sure it'll, it'll come forward. And you know, if you think about Channel Four as a as a broadcaster, the home of the Paralympic Games, it, it feels like a great fit. I think domestically we are seeing. I think we're being wound, politely wound up. Yeah. I've got one more question, if that's right. We're going to be we're going to be locked in. I, th I do think domestically we are seeing the benefits. I mean, I'll be honest. Before the World Cup, I've never ever watched a game of wheelchair rugby league, and as soon as I saw it, I fell in love with it straight away. And I work in Sheffield, living Doncaster. Most people don't really care about any form of rugby league. I had people coming up to me saying, have you been watching the wheelchair as well? It's the fastest 80 minutes of rugby league yeah, you'll yeah. ever see in your life. It's nonstop. I mean, with the action. And I mean, like with our match against uh, even Wales, obviously we're, you know, it was our decider, 50 to 38. That's a that's a very close scoreline in wheelchair rugby league because that's yeah. only three tries and that can be scored like that. Exactly. So, you know, it was it was a close game for us. And I strongly believe as well that, you know, people are starting to see the benefit. I'd prefer to play the running game than wheelchair because some of the collisions are just frightening. Yeah. But you can see the clubs are starting to take, take note as well. I mean, Michael Hawke out today, mm -hmm. they mentioned that they're looking at the possibility yeah. of opening Salford a wheelchair doing team. It. So. Are doing it. Well, late, Lee, Lee Leopards now are, are interested in, um, you know, they were they were there at the sem at the finals and, and the semifinals and were like, hey, what, you know, we, we think we should get a wheelchair game going, you know, a wheelchair team. So. Clearly, a market there that's wanting to be tapped into. So, so we'll end with 23 participants on Monday night in Sheffield. We'll end with one question which everybody can answer, not just the panel. The World Cup promised us the biggest, the best, and the most inclusive. Yes. Yes, definitely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. There you are. I think criticism. Of course, this is going to ask I think again, the it wasn't part of the official World Cup, yeah. it was a showcase, and I think this is going to grow to much bigger and better things. But you have to start somewhere, and of course, the greatest thing is that Leeds had never had captain who had lifted a World Cup in their yeah. history and then they got two in a week. Yeah. yeah I think with the PDRL one you have to remember that PDRL was nowhere near as advanced as it is now and these World yeah. Cups were awarded right. six seven years yeah. ago. Yeah. And it's great that it was part yeah, it wasn't of, part yeah. of the, uh, oh, they're starting to take the uh, floor off actually behind yeah. uh, Richard now. I think um, um, but it's not part of the, you're not yeah, part no, of the I just the mean, yeah. so, so you were talking about people flying Mm -hmm. you know, I think I was reading somewhere or somebody, the Australian guy, he was talking about there's some person drives from Cornwall to yeah. Warrington yeah. Yeah. to play PDRL and That's then right. drives back again. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they're training on a Wednesday and yeah. back again. That's, That's not flying, it's like a bottom of an airline, you know what I mean? Oh, <laughs> 
fashion. Probably can't yeah. like from uh, Cornwall to Manchester. Thank you all for coming. Um, I think we'll leave with the enduring image of the World Cup, um, which we probably haven't got time to go and get everyone's. I think it was seeing those three teams simultaneously mm. lift their trophies at Old Trafford yeah. mm. and the bulk of the crowd stay there and applaud them. Most inclusive World Cup ever? Absolutely. That one picture sums it up. Thank you very much for coming. Just ask me why. No. No, no, no. Well, did the Welsh play, play for that pay for that damaged door at Sheffield? Uh, a, lot, a lot is made about a lot is made about things on the TV that perhaps aren't reality. So. Yeah. You show passion from them. That's what I thought. Sports Social Podcast Network. A bold approach to engineering at Bowling Green State University. Our engineering degrees fuse the science of traditional engineering with technology and hands-on skills. This combination is what employers are looking for in the up-and-coming fields of robotics, advanced manufacturing, and systems engineering. It's why our graduates find jobs and why BGSU stands out. Don't just get a degree. Secure your future at BGSU.